0: Yo, listen up. I've got an incredible event coming up in Bandera, Texas, Thursday, October 12th through Sunday, October 15th at Sovereignty Ranch. It's called Confluence, and it takes place during the Ring of Fire eclipse. This eclipse carries the frequency of love, harmony, connection, and balance. And let me tell you, when we all join together in community under this eclipse, we create the foundation for a massive shift. So come hang out. I'll be live podcasting with some other amazing speakers and friends like Kelly Brogan, Andrew Kaufman, Mickey Willis, Alex Zek, Amanda Vollmer, and Shiva Rose, amongst many others. So come get down with us as we shatter the illusion of authority, learn the true energetics of regenerative food, harness the healing power of holistic remedies, foundational skills, and of course, high vibes. Get your tickets and more info at confluence2023.com. And use the code STORY10 for 10% off the entry fee, and this discount is for tickets only, so it excludes glamping, camping, food packages, and so on. Again, that's confluence2023.com, and again, the date is Thursday, October 12th through Sunday, October 15th. I'll see you there. So last night, I watched your 2018 performance on stage at Harvard called Sex and Circumcision, An American Love Story. And uh, I was shocked and also highly encouraged by what you had to say. And I think the title threw me off, An American Love Story. I thought it was going to be a little bit softer, and it was hardcore. But I love your passion for this particular topic, and I'm so excited to talk to you and to share this information. And hopefully save tens of thousands of future men from this torturous, barbaric, life-altering practice. So for those listening, I'm going to put your film in the show notes at lukestory.com slash clopper. C L O P P E R. You are, of course, Eric Clapper. So welcome to the show. Uh, well, thank you,
1: Luke. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate that you uh, watched the two hour and twelve minute performance at Harvard. And yes, it was very hardcore. Um, you know, obviously there were elements of humor. Uh, it's it's been some time five years. So you know, I've changed somewhat. The culture has changed somewhat, but. At the time, and I still do feel very strongly that we need to be protecting children from genital mutilation. And at least right now in America, we mutilate over 3,000 American boys every day in hospitals for no medical reason. It causes immediate short-term trauma and then lifelong loss of important structures um, on their sex organs, right? And even in my own experience, certainly in my Jewish family, with my American friends, uh, there's this misconception that uh, there's some health benefit to strapping an infant down and cutting off parts of his penis, which, is, uh, which continues to be repeated. It's kind of like a meme in this culture. But when I started to study abroad, I played rugby in Scotland, I studied in Australia, I talked with my peers, and they could not believe that we remove this, you know, highly functional and erogenous part of children, right? They call it mutilation. That's exactly what it is. And I never never thought that I would put on a play or a performance or a lecture, uh, you know, in opposition to male genital mutilation, but uh, I had a very strong and visceral disagreement with my Jewish father over this, which you (laughs) probably believe. Um, And this seemed to be the way you know, when I was 25 years old, a young um, employee and officer of Harvard for me to get attention on this overlooked human rights issue, human rights problem. So I really appreciate you giving me a platform to discuss this important issue of children's rights because it's really timely. I think everybody wants to protect children. They're just not aware that this is a, an issue and a problem that affects a lot of kids uh, in America and a lot of men as well. And also as men, we don't want to think, oh, hey, something happened to me that, you know, was not beneficial. That may have had a detrimental effect on my sex life or on my psychosexual composition. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, these are real traumas, you know, holding an infant down and cutting off the most sensitive part of his body. So,
0: Yeah, but there's so many great points in there and I can't wait to unpack all of this. Um, it, it, as as a man who had this procedure performed, I never gave it a thought my entire life until I heard my friend Daniel Vitalis talking about it uh, on a podcast he had years ago, and the way he framed it piqued my curiosity. And so I started kind of looking into it, just as a societal issue and and potentially something that could be an issue for me and the many problems I've had in my <laughs> yeah. life, many of them of a sexual nature. Uh, and then I stumbled upon this film called American Circumcision, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, by Brendan Murata, and way back on the podcast, and we'll put this in the show notes, a link to his film in that episode. I watched his film, and it changed my life because it was so disturbing, especially the part of the film and you know, parental warning on this one where they show a standard um, circumcision process. And it's just, after watching that, I thought a couple of things. I thought I need as many, I don't need, but I, I wish that everyone in the world who supports circumcision had to just watch that one scene because yeah. it is, it's so obviously cruel and traumatizing and violent and what you learn in that film and what we're going to talk about today is also totally unnecessary and has no basis scientifically in terms of hygiene or anything. Um, but a couple of things happened when I watched that. A, I thought, man, I, I want to be as much of an advocate for awareness as I can. So, you know, finding you. Thank you, Jared, over here for turning me on to your work. Uh, but another thing that happened was it started a process, to your point, of me starting to examine my own trauma as a result of that having happened. And uh, there's been a lot of grieving and a lot of realizations and and many uh, rabbit holes of understanding myself through self-inquiry, how that particular procedure shaped me as a man and and warped my sexuality and robbed me of sexual experience. So I'm personally invested in it because I've done a lot of really deep work around that trauma. And to your point, I think as men, it's very difficult for us to reconcile that many of our parents unknowingly betrayed our trust and violated us in such a profound way. And to that end, I find that when I bring up this topic publicly, the majority of pushback I get is from males who have been circumcised. <laughs> Women seem to get it right away. Mm. Uncircumcised men definitely get it. You spoke oh, yeah. to you know, Europe and and uh, the countries in Europe and other places in the world where this is not ubiquitous. Everyone else seems to get it except the men for whom this has happened, uh, which speaks to that kind of cognitive dissonance and denial. We don't want to face it, and we also do certainly i'm sure i'm not a parent yet but i'm sure parents that have just kind of gone with the status quo and done that to their infant boys they don't want to face the potential guilt that they would feel having followed in their father's footsteps and so on so it's it's something that i'm really passionate about sharing and um that's just my you know my introduction to our talk it's it's very personal for me because it's very it's very real and it's, it's very serious. And the implications in our culture are widespread beyond just what happens to each individual man. So thank you for your commitment to the work and thank you for, you know, committing yourself at least for this period in your life to something that is probably not really comfortable to deal with on (laughs) many, many levels. So, so that that brings us to where we are now. Well, I'm a big believer
1: in uh, whatever makes you uncomfortable is kind of a signal that you should probably lean in there. And I was very uncomfortable addressing, oh wow, this horrible thing had happened to me. Someone stole a body part that I would have wanted that you know contributes to sexual function and orgasms and uh, pleasure and just protection. And, you know, it's an important part of the body, but. When you're talking about the resistance that men have to this, well, the two most psychologically important parts of the bodies are the face and the genitals, right? If you have disfigurements in those areas, it's really difficult to cope with, right? As opposed to an arm or a leg or whatnot. And to understand that this, you know, a lot of men, probably not wisely, but per our culture, they place a lot of importance on oh, their genitals. Like as a young man in America, you joke often about penis size and function and all that. But to understand that if you're circumcised, you almost certainly have a scar on your penis where a part of your penis, the most sensitive part of your penis should be, right? And that is a difficult thing to uh, understand. Like you said, there's a lot of grieving when you watch watched Brendan Moroda's film. I came to that realization when I was playing rugby abroad and when you're a young man in your late teens uh, and, you know, you've got a lot of hormones and that's a really important part of your life, it's very difficult to to come to or grasp that realization, look, this terrible thing happened to me and it deprives me of really understanding what the sexual experience is supposed to be, how God or nature or the universe made us, whatever your spirituality, right? And to lose that that 's a real that 's a real loss it 's not like a property loss it 's like a soul loss and uh, when I was a young man kind of trying to find my way you know after graduating college, I was trying to figure out what do I want to do right and when I was asking myself that, I came to the realization and the conviction that if I could have anything in the world, anything anything. Uh, you name it, it would have been to have had my human rights respected as a child and to have my entire body to myself, right? And to, under, to make decisions, important decisions about my body. Uh, and because obviously that's not something that we can get back. It's something that as someone who has a relative position of privilege in society, it's something that I could advocate for and be proud of that as moving forward. That said, this is protecting children from genital mutilation is not something I want to do forever because I don't want this problem to continue forever. I would like to complete the goal as fast as possible. And if you look at other human rights issues, gay marriage uh, comes to the forefront these issues flipped very quickly in a matter of years once there was enough people who really understood look these are people who love other people just like everyone else and you know the world's not going to come to an end if we allow people to marry who they love nor will the world come to an end if we protect children from genital mutilation i mean it's something that everyone no matter where you stand on the political spectrum can really get behind Because these are innocent kids and they don't deserve to be traumatized and mutilated as infants, right? And so that's kind of how I got into this. And then I kind of looked at life as an adventurer, right? I don't know where this is going to take me, but we're going to lean in and do my very best to put an end to this cruel and barbaric practice, And somehow it ended up with me getting a career at Harvard, a a great career. I think people saw that I was genuine in what I was trying to do. And although it was kind of outside of what was normally expected from a young man, they are like, you know, I can see that he's sincere in his motives and he's good at what he does. So we're going to welcome him at Harvard. And that is unfortunately how I, uh, let's say... I um, got into a big conflict with them because I didn't pick a fight with Harvard, but Harvard kind of picked a fight with me because my my conviction and my expression on my ideas really made some people uncomfortable. And I can understand why. I come from a Jewish family. And as a Jew, it is uh, – you're, it's often reiterated when you're young of what we've had to survive to get here, right? Because there's been a lot of persecution and you know, obviously terrible Holocaust comes to mind at the same time. So you're kind of born into this world where yes, you're taught to do well and to be ethical, but also you never know the Holocaust could occur. And so when people say things that trigger that trauma, that generational trauma, there becomes a very visceral reaction to that. And so um, maybe we'll get into this at some point, but the play was very well received, two uh, two two and a half hour, and we can discuss what happened after the play as well. But even though it got a prolonged standing ovation, the student newspaper called it a nude anti-Semitic grant. And as soon as that happened, the administration's like, well, you're a nude anti-Semitic grantor. We don't have to take you seriously. And so you're fired. And that's the end of it. Right. And I actually discovered that with the federal judiciary as well. Um, at least so far, we'll see if the Supreme Court has a different opinion on you know whether or not people have due process rights and can litigate their claims, or if you're falsely accused of anti-Semitism, you know it's game over and we don't have to listen to you. And that's a very dangerous road to walk down because you can be labeled anything. It doesn't have to be anti-Semitic, right? It could be anti-Semitic, it could be racist, it could be I'm not you know not sure. And obviously, all, all those things are terrible, but we need to separate the merit of ideas with whatever negative values you impute on people and i think having a functional functioning democracy we need to we need to have the presumption that everyone you deal with is in good faith until proved otherwise now i'm not saying that you need to like expose your secrets and and expose yourself to harm but but there needs to be some mutual trust that's established at the outset otherwise we have this dysfunctional democracy where it's just purely tribal left right whatever it is the great back and forth and i'm trying to avoid that with this issue
0: well when i was doing some research on you in preparation for our talk today um, one of the well one of the many search results <laughs> that <it> populate <laughs> yeah. is you that you were a nudist and anti-semitic and having just watched your presentation I mean, like so many things in the media, when they seek to smear someone, it, it's just factually inaccurate, you know, to the points that you raised about the Jewish faith and their traditions, at, at no point did I hear you say Jewish people as a whole are wrong or bad or shouldn't exist. You said there is a practice that is embedded into certain sects of Judaism that has been going on for a very long time is still going on, and it is evil and wrong, and uh, uh, equivalent to uh, a sex crime. You didn't say that Jewish people are bad; you said there's one part of the practice, this sort of uh, artifact that has remained that is harmful, <laughs> and so. And you weren't nude either. Well, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you this, took this, your shirt off no, at some point.
1: Well, you know. I didn't include the nudity on YouTube because they have certain filters. Oh, so you did. Th- there was me? there was a new dance in that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, after the standing ovation, I went back on stage uh, with inflatable love doll and did a three and a half minute choreographed dance to Britney Spears' "Toxic," because uh, we thought it was funny, right? And it's actually um, well, not only that, but uh, the play was largely advertised as a new play. This was my boss's idea because he figured we'd be able to sell more seats if I. Uh, Put out, and he was right. I mean, there was a very good turnout, and in Massachusetts, at least uh, for the last thirty years, the Massachusetts Supreme Court has held that nude expressive dance is actually protected expression under the uh, the free speech amendment in Massachusetts Constitution. And Harvard's promises in their free expression policy say, you know what, we're going to honor uh, free expression anything protected by the First Amendment uh, or analogously the Massachusetts Free Speech Amendment. And so my boss said, look, this is protected speech. We're going to advertise this as a nude play. And, you know, that's what we're going to do to increase the profile to get people looking at this. And it wasn't just the nude dance, too. It was advertised with eight-foot inflatable penises. Uh, There was the love doll, the sex scene, all that. And this was just to, you know, I was 25, but I was trying to get attention on this human rights crime, right? I mean, it's just an atrocity to mutilate infants. And all of these antics pale in comparison to actually what we do to our baby boys in this country. And that was
0: my attempt to try to shine a light on that. Um, That's, yeah, that's, Funny. Well, it's funny that you, so you were rightfully accused of that one point. Well, <laughs> accused of being a nudist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, to yeah. begin hey, with. Hey, whatever. But that, that's so interesting that, God, our world is so freaking backwards. It's interesting that the public outrage was about you being nude and you being critical of certain religious rituals. The outrage wasn't about the content of your talk and what you're actually pointing to, which is where the outrage should be directed. And that is the mutilation and torture of young boys in America. It's just like, uh, perhaps
1: that was an error in my strategy, right? And moving forward, it's really focused on how do we protect baby boys from genital mutilation. At the same time, I was 25. I didn't have the same platform as I did. And I wanted to gather attention and be bombastic and provocative. And so that was the plan at the time. But I didn't really understand how that would be. So like a cartoon caricature attack on me would occur. And worse, that Harvard would fall for it. At least the administrators Hookline and sinker and be like, oh, well, we can't, we can't, employ a nude anti-semitic grantor it's like well I, i'm not but but oh well it says that on the headline from two student reporters who didn't see the play and it's like of course <laughs> yeah <laughs> of course they do. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah.
0: i always love to offer products that align with the lifestylist mission and over at silver biotics their mission is to promote active and balanced living through education science, and the power of nature. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's what we're all about over here. And their element of choice to achieve that is colloidal silver. It works by disrupting the cellular structure of pathogens, making it impossible for microbes, fungus, and mold to survive. The best thing is, though, that it's safe, non-toxic, and has no known side effects. Now, you might have heard of silver, but Silverbiotics has changed the science of silver with their patented SilverSol process. The nanoparticles in Silversol function continuously and they aren't neutralized like other forms of silver, so they're more bioavailable. Plus, and this is really important, they leave the body within 36 hours, which makes Silversol safer and up to 10 times more effective than any other colloidal silver on the market. And they haven't been sleeping over at Silverbiotics coming up with ways to get your daily dose. They've got toothpaste, first aid topical gel, skin creams, and immune support drops, sprays, and lozenges. So they've really got all your bases covered, and uh, I just love a number of their different products. I've got them in the medicine cabinet, my travel bag, and all over the place. They're very useful and definitely very effective. So check out all the goods over at silverbiotics.com, and use the code Luke at checkout to save 30 percent that's right 30 percent. massive discount again that's silverbiotics.com and the code is luke so uh, tell us a little bit and i want to get into a lot of the history and the medical implications there's so many things i have a long long list probably way too much than we have time for today but uh, give us the the truncated version of the repercussions from Harvard and uh, the subsequent lawsuit that you initiated and get us up to date on on where the legal proceedings are around that particular event.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. So, Harvard's primary purpose, as far as I understand and was told, is to promote vigorous speech and debate and promote, People freely expressing themselves, even ideas that may not be fully developed or correct because it's supposed to be the crucible of debate and in the search for truth, right? And in that vein, I designed a provocative and bombastic play to shine a light on male genital mutilation that, you know, how people know me from, or at least some people. And it was very well received. And the next day, the Harvard Crimson said, Harvard employee Eric Klopper goes on nude anti-Semitic rant in Sanders Theater. That was the headline, right? And so that causes a 10-alarm fire. Um, and I understand Harvard's alumni are probably understandably repulsed by anti-Semitism. And also they probably give a lot of money and say, how could you be employing a nude anti-Semitic ranter, right? I saw it in the Crimson, must be true. And so I was immediately put on suspension, paid administrative leave. And Harvard began to lean on my boss, who was a very close friend of mine, Tom Hammond, to say, look you need to find something wrong that Klopper did so we can fire him. Because if we fire Klopper for what he said and how he expressed himself, then that would show that we're an obviously hypocritical institution that talks out of both sides of our mouths, right? Say, oh, we protect free expression unless you say something that offends somebody, in which case we don't, right? So Harvard leaned on my boss, Tom Hammond, to say, Hey, find something to fire him for. And Tom and I were very close. He was my mentor for many years. I feel very fortunate for that. I had stepped in when he needed help a couple of years ago, uh, when he was morbidly obese and, and and not doing well and was about to pass away. He used to joke that I was one of his pallbearers, right? To, to, for him to tell me, look, I'm not going to be around for too long. And so over the last two years, I had helped him lose about 160 pounds, uh, taking him to the gym every day. So but he had terminal cancer. So his life was kind of in his final chapter, right? And so when Harvard leaned on my boss right after the play to terminate me, Tom's like, no, I'm not going to do that. There's nothing you can do for me to turn on Klopper. He's my brother. And, you know, I'm I'm proud to actually stand by the message of his play to protect genital mutilation. I've devoted my life to Harvard. And from my experience at Harvard, you do defend free expression and all that. And this was a 10 alarm fire, right? So... So Harvard instead tried to get my colleagues, student workers to share information that would be grounds to terminate me. And Most people, including faculty I worked with, said, no, actually Klopp is a really good employee and we like him. And so this this investigation to try to find something to terminate me lasted two, three months, right? And eventually when all the students had left for summer and the outrage of what had occurred, because, you know, it was a very well-received play, but it was very critical in the Harvard Crimson. So there was like a lot of rumors, like what actually happened, right? Um, when everyone had went away after two or three months, Harvard called me in, my dean read me my termination letter with tears in his eyes, and that was that. It was over, right? And during this time, my attorney had been sending Harvard demand letters saying, look, if you terminate Clopper, we're going to push that you had promised him, that his boss has promised him, his dean had promised him, your faculty who supported the play promised Eric Clopper that we were not going to terminate or retaliate against him for expressing himself during his play. I was 25 years old. I was like, okay. I, literally, all these sources of authority were saying, Eric, you'll be okay. Just say what you mean. I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was politically expedient to terminate me. It was probably uh, economical to do so in a strict you know, monetary analysis. So Harvard fired me. And then after Harvard fired me, you know they weren't done and this is what really upset me is well they moved to terminate my boss too because he was not playing around with the narrative oh eric is a bad guy and we were right to terminate him right because nobody could mention me because you know that would put their own career at risk it was like a real harsh and punitive excommunication and my boss tom was not willing to play along with that narrative so harvard started to move to terminate him And after they hired Tom's replacement, forced Tom to train her, stopped inviting him to meetings, and was just about to terminate Tom, who was very sick and had devoted his life to Harvard, Um, Tom committed suicide. And he was my best friend. He had been my mentor for many years. Um, And I had found his corpse. I had tried to revive him. Um, I had the the medics came. They tried to revive him. And it was a huge disaster. It was very traumatic for me. And then... uh, harvard police come who are harvard employees but also police and they're like what did you do here did you you know assist killing him and i was like no yeah it's like if anything harvard is the one who pushed him over the edge and so after they had taken my career uh they assassinated my character they killed my best friend i was totally wiped off the map right but i had told harvard in those two or three months look if you continue with this course of action, I'm going to litigate this because this is an important issue of free expression in the academy. Universities play an exceptionally important role in this democracy in teaching the future leaders of our democracy. And Harvard is obviously a very notable institution in the academy. And we need to know as a people, as a public, when a university promises its members that it's going to honor its free expression policy, do universities have any legal obligation to honor that promise? Because people are very afraid to speak their minds or to share unorthodox ideas. And that stifles what are important advances, like moving away from infant male genital mutilation, right? And so I wasn't sure how to do that. I had a very good mentor who I was very lucky to find. And he pushed, he suggested that I go to law school. And I was looking at graduate schools at the time. And if you look at the play and kind of the purpose, which is to protecting all children from genital mutilation, that's really a a legal development. Uh, It made a lot of sense. And so, and also I needed to sue Harvard. I said I was going to do it. So I was going to do it and I'll push it as far as necessary or as far as I can. And so I was very lucky that Georgetown law school accepted me because I got waitlisted from almost every school. And I think it's because, you know, if you look me up, it's like, okay, you know, he's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> got good grades, but, uh, you know, this this nude anti-Semitic grant, I don't know what that's about, but it probably doesn't add to a student body, right? Yeah. And so that followed me. It actually prevented me from working at big law firms, too, because if you Google me, you know, it's it just it's too much of a risk. Um, but yeah, so I got into law school. I started. I learned the basics of law, and I sued Harvard in federal district court.
0: And so that's why you went to law school. Yes. At the same
1: time, I have a good friend who's a lawyer. I saw what he did. I figured, you know what, being a lawyer just gives you more range of things to do. know what I mean? You're you're more effective. So now independent of where the Harvard uh, free expression lawsuit lands, um, which is before the Supreme court now. And I'd like to speak about that at some point, but independent of where that lands, it, empowers or enables me to pursue litigation on behalf of these kids, right? And that's where we're going regardless. So I'm very fortunate in that I found this career out of the chaos because it really was
0: a tragedy. My whole life was kind of uh, snuffed out. Wow, dude. Hardcore. You're a warrior, man. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, when I was watching your your performance, I thought, I wonder if... I wonder if I could sue St. Anthony's Hospital in Denver. (laughs) I seriously (laughs) had that thought. I was like, man, never thought about it before, but there is uh, definitely an injured party involved in that. So uh, we'll come back later on to the current status of of your suit and stuff. For the interest of the parents-to-be listening and men who have uh, been a victim of this procedure, I want to definitely get into some of the details of the historic relevance of this practice, where it came from, why it exists, um, how prevalent it is now, is it declining, all of that kind of stuff. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, But maybe we can start just by having you describe your experience of this taboo You know, why is this particular topic so hard for people to talk about? And why is it not more prevalent Mm. in terms of human rights? Well, I
1: discovered in university how taboo it was because I was a member of a fraternity. And, you know, it it could be crass at times, you know, kind of understated. But when I would bring this topic up, circumcision, I wouldn't call it genital mutilation at the time, with my friends and fraternity brothers, not always the same thing. Almost all of them would have this like visceral reaction, like, oh, I can't discuss or engage with this topic. And these were guys who, you know, couldn't discuss and engage with a lot of topics, right? But this particular one was just anathema. They just couldn't They couldn't grasp the fact that we were talking about it. And I thought that was so bizarre. I was like, we, so we all have been anatomically changed and nobody can discuss it. And- I kind of took that as an invitation to lean in. I think a lot of people take it as a as a signal to back off. But, you know, that's just kind of how I'm made up is, you know, you lean in on the pressure point because there's probably something there, right? Mm-hmm. And that is what a lot of... So people who are opposed to male genital mutilation are called intactivist activists for intact bodies. Um, a lot of intactivists call that the obsessive epiphany. When you realize that this part of your culture that is so normalized or was normalized is actually so sinister and really heinous too. But, and you start reading more and more and I started to devour books on circumcision and realize, oh, wow, this is a practice that was intentionally designed to sexually damage you. And when I began to understand that, I kind of flipped a switch and I was like, that's not acceptable in the country that I live in, right? I mean, America is better than that and we are better than that. And nobody I know... Wants to damage these kids, but there's this 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 uh, pervasive taboo where it's like we cannot discuss this, and that's why um, I made the play. Right? It's like we are going to have this discussion, right? And that was what I was able to contribute at the time, and obviously it wasn't perfect. Um, but you know, in my current capacity, I can contribute in other ways. But the question was like how do we deal with the taboo or why does it exist? Yeah, just, just,
0: yeah, I guess you answered it really. Why is this something that people have such a hard time facing? Why is the dialogue around this so difficult to approach? I think when you look at other cultures for whom female genital mutilation is still a common practice, everyone unequivocally agrees that that should not be the case,
1: yeah. right? <laughs> well,
0: except the people in that those cultures, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, people in the West, Americans, yeah. right? If you, I yeah. don't know what countries do that. Maybe um, some uh, countries in Africa or yeah. wherever they are, right? They exist, though. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they do. You hear about that, and pretty much everyone here in our society would agree that that's wrong. And we would never adopt that as a new practice, right? If somebody brought that to the medical establishment at large and said, hey, you know what? Women, uh, you know, are going to be less prone to UTIs if we, you know, burn their clitoris with acid uh, at birth, Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and start implementing that. I mean, there'd be a lot of pushback and I feel like it (laughs) wouldn't be taboo. There would be conversations, there would be pushback, but for some reason, because this practice is so embedded in our culture and in our medical system and it's so normalized, it's kind of like, it's like this taboo of, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's like, ah, oh, this is just what we do. Why question And If you question it, you're weird. Yeah. Why are you so worried about male genitalia? It's, it's whatever. You know? yeah, yeah. It's just, it's like a difficult topic to, for people to talk about. And, and maybe, maybe I answered my own question earlier, you know, that it has to do with, um, as a man who's had it done, we, we don't want to face that trauma. It's like, talk about shadow work, man. I yeah. mean, that's like, the first few days of your life, the ultimate shadow was cast right mm-hmm. and, and if you 're a parent who 's done it, you don 't want to face the fact that you 've unknowingly done something so detrimental to your your kids, so may, maybe that 's where the taboo comes from is just like shame and embarrassment and guilt and let 's just not talk about it, but let 's not talk about it. it. keeps it going exactly, and so that can 't be an option
1: because we have to talk about it if we 're going to fix fix this and protect children, right? And so, but as you said, people don't talk about it because it may reflect negatively on their own image or their own sexuality. It may reflect negatively on their relationship with their parents. Um, as you probably can believe, I've had some disagreements with my father over this. And, you know, we've...
0: Where, where are you and your dad in this conversation now?
1: Uh, well, we're, we've we both grown significantly and, you know, we're, we're much closer. We're not like... I wouldn't say we're best friends or anything, but, you know, we, we can... Uh, Understand and see each other, and my family does not circumcise anymore. So, really, yeah, wow, which is great. I mean, you Amazing. can be a good Jew and not circumcise. I, I want to <laughs> implore the audience yeah. to know this, right? I mean, you know, a large part of being a Jew is is trying to help other people and make the world a better place. And I know that a lot of of my Jewish brothers and sisters are attached to this, but we also used to be attached to slavery and sacrifice of of fatted calves and putting to death gay people or adulterers, right? So these, it's kind of in that realm, genital mutilation, right? And we need to look at it at that lens. But it has so many negative negative implications. It's like a negative mirror to see, oh, wow, we really are, let's say ignorant is the best best adjective because I don't think it's malevolence. I just think it's inertial ignorance that we keep doing this. But uh, somebody's got a, got a, oh, people like you, like me, we need to discuss this and, and, and really confront it because it's not okay to mutilate infants, right? I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine something so sinister, but it's true. It's no different than cutting off parts of a, a baby girl's genitalia and selling them for profit. But that's what we do to our baby boys. And over 30 years ago, in the 90s, we decided as a nation to outlaw female genital mutilation in 1996. Which is
0: also crazy that it was that recent. (laughs) That was Well, that's true. I'm like, when I heard that stat years ago, I remember, oh, that's great. And I thought, wait a minute, that was like a few years ago. uh, What?
1: So the federal government outlawed it and about 30 states outlawed it. And that's great and we commend it. But there's a very clear gap in the floor of children's rights and protections. And we just want to fix that gap and protect all children. So that's kind of where we're going with this now. And my law firm, the Kane Law Firm in Los Angeles, we believe that if we we bring challenges on constitutional equal protection grounds of these anti-FGM statutes, that will force the judiciary and the legislature to reckon with this obvious violation of equal protection. Right, and we're going to encourage the legislatures in those states. To say, look, it's great and admirable you protect women, and you have been doing this for over thirty years. But it's time we protect all children. This is a timely message. It's something that that can, should, and will catch on. And um, that is the plan.
0: What do you think? Uh, and this is going to be intuitive conjecture at best, because I, I do want to get into. You lay out so many facts in your presentation that are irrefutable. It's just true, right? And there's just no wiggling around it. But I look at this issue sometimes from a philosophical standpoint, because of course I'm just always unpacking my own personality and issues that I'm working on or issues that I've worked through. Broadly speaking, I'm going to share my thoughts with you and see if you can corroborate them or if you have anything to add or counter. I think that this practice has so much to do with sexual violence perpetuated by men in our culture. I think that it has helped the proliferation of pornography. Uh, I think that the rage of the trauma that circumcised men unknowingly hold in their subconscious spills out into our culture in harmful ways, violence, uh, sexual violence, etc. I think that this is at the root of many of our problems because men that have been injured are going to injure other people, whether they are consciously aware of the fact they've been injured or or not. Furthermore, looking at my own experience and studying some of the anatomical workings of the male body. And you described a lot of this in your, in your talk. The way that a circumcised penis experiences sexual pleasure is radically altered and diminished. And so the sexual expression of men and the way that men like me that grew up in the 70s and learned about sex from watching pornography, the, um, the violent sort of pounding nature of sex and the incapacity to make love in a feeling sensitive way. It's just not present. I mean, I think it's like so broadly affected the way men experience sex and pursue sex and conduct themselves sexually that it's its like way bigger than we could ever realize in its implications. But those implications are difficult to like put your finger on and prove because it's kind of anecdotal. But when I hear an intact man talk about the way they experience multiple orgasms, the way they can um, be in control of when they orgasm, all of these things, not needing lubrication when they masturbate because an intact penis is its own built-in lubrication. It's like, I think this has completely warped our entire population of men. And as a result, the, the sexual partners with whom they interact. Just the way an uncircumcised man is going to have sex with a woman is anatomically different because those parts aren't working together the way that nature intended them to work. Well,
1: exactly. And if you look at the justifications, whether they be religious or medical, secular, it was designed to damage male sexuality because when you remove the foreskin, that's where most of the nerve endings are. Uh, I like—I would call it the lips of the penis. It's kind of where the skin and the inner mucosa transition, like the lips of the face. It's also where most of the nerve endings are, just like in your face, they're mostly on the lips, right? And so when you remove the majority of the tissue that actually feels your partner and yourself, you. It requires much larger strokes to get a small fraction of that feeling. And not only that, the foreskin, not only sexual, it has protective functions, kind of like your eyelids to your eyes. So if you were to remove your eyelids, not only would you be disfigured, but your eye would not function well, it would be dried out, you wouldn't be able to see well. Well, same with the head of the penis. It's an internal structure. And so the foreskin keeps it internal. It keeps it warm, moist, kind of like your tongue. And so you feel far more with the head or the glands of the penis. You have far more sensory tissue to feel yourself and your partner. And because it's a double-layered tissue, not only do you have more sensory nerve endings, but they rub against each other. So you can move very little and an intact man instead of being like a jackhammer, you're more like dancing with your partner and you could be very close with them, which also uh, enables more clitoral stimulation because you're rubbing against the bodies instead of going like this.
0: Right. It's, it's, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm picturing like an, like an oil rig, boom, boom, or jackhammer, yeah. you know? And I'm like, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with having that That's kind of thing, sex. I mean, right? yeah. sex can be expressed infinitely, obviously, <laughs> when it comes to intercourse, there's yeah. an infinite number of ways in which, Two people can do that, but I'm just looking at the core of the anatomy and I just, I just know because I know I'm in my body. I yeah. know how I operate and something is definitely missing, which I never would have known had it not been for guys like you and Brendan Marotta. Is it Marotta or Marotta? Marotta. I believe it's Morada. Marotta. I mean I would have just lived my best life and just thought great at, at least I I have a, an adequate uh, adequately sized and working <laughs> 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 yeah. phallus you know um but then when I realized wait but it could it could have been different yes you know and I I think that that's part of the cognitive dissonance of men especially circumcised men not wanting to face this It's like who wants to live the remainder of your days for the next 60 or however many years Knowing that you got really robbed out of a vital part of human experience, not just for your own pleasure, but as you indicated, you know, the clitoral stimulation that would be present in two intact heterosexual partners fornicating, right? And like why women seem to get left out of the orgasm equation so much during sexual interactions and... The need for lubrication and all of this. It's just like it's it's so wrong on so many levels, not only like the cruelty and the trauma, but just the functionality of it. And and I think that this lack of full experience on behalf of males warps our sexuality, as I said, you know, and leads us into needing the overstimulation of pornography, right? Like let's <clears> say that your your penis is fully intact. It's like when you're a little boy you didn't need pornography or any kind of stimuli to get really excited and, and climax or get an erection, right? Yeah. But because you have this callus now on your penis, it requires all of this really radical, ultra stimulating, um, um, You know, whether it's pornography or the way that you have sex, it's like everything is just kind of over amped because of the deficit of sensation and the deficit of feeling and sensitivity. Mm. That's what I mean. There's like this cascade of side effects and consequences downstream from this, apart from just the barbaric nature of the trauma. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not just the immediate trauma, which is
1: significant. I mean, there have been studies, I haven't looked at them in, in a while, but they would actually. Measure the pitch and the fervor of infant screams during various stages of the circumcision. And they found, like, oh, well, when the genitals are being torn apart, they're screaming the loudest. And it's like, obviously, in their cortisol, their stress hormone spike, they have trouble bonding with their mothers afterwards. So there's the obvious immediate trauma to an infant, which we, none of us want. And then there's, like you said, the lifelong effects of having your sexuality forever, not only changed, but diminished. And it borders more on violence than love. And that's because your first experience, your first sexual experience is having your genitalia, how they usually circumcise or mutilate an infant is that they play with the infant's penis to get it hard. And then they cut off 40% of the skin during the circumcision. So it's the first sexual experience of most American men is, is marred by horrific violence. And kind of like you were, what you were saying before, I kind of look at it like, let's say you have two puppies from the same mother, and one puppy is horribly abused and kicked and mutilated. The other puppy is brought up with love. Those puppies aren't going to be the same, right? The, the one who was abused is going to be more violent. It's going to be more reactive. The, pup, the dog is not going to be articulated. Now, obviously, humans aren't dogs, but we're both mammals and we have similar psychological makeup. And when you mutilate an entire nation, going to have macroscopic effects. And this question, is there an effect, which we both of us strongly believe there is, I believe there's great reason for that. But whether or not there's an effect or not, these are questions that we should be asking in our universities, right? And, you know, when, you know, a university as notable as Harvard or, you know, other universities of that tier begin to squash conversation about this, that's kind of a A sign, oh, wow, this is probably important. And that's why people like you are so important is people who aren't beholden to anybody. You know what I mean? Because if you operate in this big bureaucracy, there's going to be somebody above you who's not going to like you discussing circumcision and general mutilation for one of the reasons we talked about. Maybe it reflects poorly on them or on their parents or on their tribe or their religious beliefs or whatever, right? But that is not a reason to not discuss it. If anything, it's probably a signal that we should lean into it. I know it's going to be uncomfortable as a culture to reckon with what we've done to most American men, but it is absolutely necessary because the alternative is we continue to mutilate infants and I'm not okay with that. And, you know, I'll do what is necessary to... To put an end to it. Hopefully soon. And the more people who kind of support us and and the sooner we can do it.
0: Getting older is just one of those things, man. It happens to the best of us, even your humble host. I'm about to turn 53 this year. Yikes. Now what if I told you there was a way to hack into the aging process and fight back against age-related decline? MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition is a breakthrough postbiotic that activates your body's natural defense against aging. This stuff is clinically shown to trigger a crucial recycling process within our cells called mitophagy that promotes healthy aging. And it's the first product to offer a precise dose of something called urolithin A, which is a compound derived from pomegranate. 10 years of research shows that it upgrades mitochondrial function, increases cellular energy, and improves muscle strength. And you can get your daily dose three different ways. MitoPure's berry powder is great for your morning smoothie, which is my favorite personally. They've also got soft gels, which are convenient for travel. And finally, they delicious. Vanilla protein powder combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure to support strength in a brand new way. So here's what's up. Head over to TimelineNutrition.com slash Luke. Punch in code Luke10 to get 10% off any two, four, or 12-month MitoPure plan. Again, use promo code Luke10 for 10% off any two, four, or 12-month MitoPure plan at TimelineNutrition.com slash Luke. Tell us about the different methods of this procedure in terms of the severity of pain and and trauma. I know there's different medical apparatus there that's is. used uh, in the more hardcore um, ritualistic. Um, Would you ju- like ju- ju- um, r- what do you call it? Rabbinical, yeah, rabbinical practice. Yeah. Like I know there's kind of a range of how it's done from mm-hmm. super traumatic and. I would use the word satanic personally, to maybe more humane? Is there any way, aside from the repercussions, but the actual act and the initial trauma itself, is there a gradient in terms of the severity?
1: Well, I'm going to say something you may be surprised by this, but Judaism, when they adopted circumcision, it was actually a progressive step because they were moving away from child sacrifice right? So instead of killing the whole child, you just kill an essential part of him. And the original circumcision uh, was called the Mila. It's just a cut. And you would just cut off the overhanging tip of the foreskin. See, people don't... uh, Americans, excuse me, largely don't know what a foreskin is. It's actually a massive structure. It's about the size of my palm or your palm. And it really extends over the head of the penis and you can cut off just the top and still keep most of the foreskin. And so the original Jewish circumcision used to be just the the, tip, the overhanging tip. And um, over time, rabbis radicalized it by not only cutting the overhanging tip, but they would use their fingernails to shred the genital mucosa because the foreskin and the head of the penis are fused until almost puberty for most boys. So... The rabbis or moyels used to just cut off the very tip of the foreskin. And what had happened historically is that some Jewish men didn't want to be circumcised. And so they were able to stretch the remaining foreskin over the head of the penis and appear intact or as a Gentile, which was important in the ancient Greek Olympics because uh, as nature designed us, the head of the penis usually isn't exposed unless you are sexually aroused. Right, and so if the head of the penis was exposed, at least in ancient Greece, it was seen as a crude, um, a crude depiction of an erection. Right, so Jews were able to uh, better fit in with society, and this really upset rabbis. So around 200 AD, rabbis. Radicalized the circumcision, and so instead of just cutting the overhanging tip of the foreskin off, it was an ablation of the entire tissue. And so, uh, moils, which were often rabbis, but moils would sharpen their fingernails, and after they would cut off the tip of the foreskin using some, you know, uh, ceremonial scissors, they would use their sharpened fingernails to tear the genital structures of the infant apart because what a lot of people aren't aware is the foreskin and the head of the penis are fused until puberty for most boys. So you'd actually have to tear the genitals apart with your fingernails to complete the circumcision. And this was an extreme form of genital mutilation. We're talking 40, 50% of the skin of the penis and most of the sensory tissue, all the mobility, a lot of the protective functions. And because this was such an extreme violence. Kids were dying, whether by infection or blood loss. So what Judaism started implementing was called Mitzitzah Bapa, which is uh, Moyles, sometime rabbis, would actually suck on the, the bleeding penis of the infant. And this, these were the three stages of the religious circumcision, which continued to almost the 1840s. And after Judaism got a lot of flack and had some introspection, they said, you know what, we're not going to do the sucking of the penis anymore, uh, at least almost all of Judaism, with the exception of super orthodox sects, who still perform that in like hardcore orthodox sections like in Brooklyn, New York. And this is
0: lawful, the the practice as it continues to this day in, in, you know, in obscure enclaves of that culture. I mean, like how, how does child protective services not get called when, at the wherever they're doing this the synagogue down the street or someone's home where a rabbi is giving bloody fellatio to an infant how is that not being reported or how is that not a crime i i'm totally shocked and mystified that that is i'm shocked that circumcision in any capacity (laughs) is still happening but this part is really, really warped. Well, it's probably
1: largely political, right? Because these Orthodox sects, they are a huge voting block, right? And so, who's ever in charge of these neighborhoods, typically, you know, you need to be, you need the support of the religious leaders. And I know that New York Health um, Service, I'm not exactly sure the official title, they put out a notice to uh, Moyles and the Orthodox community saying, we advise you to no longer perform at bapa, Bapa, And uh, it didn't really have any effect at all because this is the religion and this is what we must do. But most Jews are Reform humanists. They want to do what's best for people and they evolve and grow with time. So um, this is like an extreme minority, but it does happen. And if something's lawful or not, it's, it's not prosecuted, right? So it's de facto lawful. Um, and because it's religious... You know, it's, it kind of escapes the, you could argue, overt sexual nature of the practice of sucking on the genitalia
0: of an infant, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, who's, who's, whose job is that? <laughs> How do you convince someone like, hey, your role in this ritual is doing this? I mean, I'm just... Yeah,
1: it, it gives me the willies. I'm but. Shook
0: at th- I've I've heard that and didn't, you know, didn't research to validate that historically or... If, well, if there were, were still at all articles in
1: Washington rate. Post or of that caliber saying, you know, here is a baby who got herpes because of mouth to genitalia contact from, you know, a moil, and his brain has been totally destroyed for life because infants don't have the same immune. What's a moil? Uh, so a moil is a ritual circumciser, like that's the term.
0: Oh, that's like their yeah. role specifically. Yeah,
1: and rabbis can be moils, moils can be rabbis, but they're not necessarily the same. Okay. Like a, I believe a shock is is the the religious practitioner who slices the the animal's throat from ear to ear, right? Um like there's different
0: terms for people who do different things uh the it. rituals. Okay, so at the at the most extreme uh end of the spectrum that was happening and then in uh in, well, relatively insignificant ways that's still happening. What are the other methods that are used, um, you know, religiously or medically? Like, I'm I'm so curious. There's no way of knowing, but I wonder how they did it to me. (laughs) My parents don't know and no one really knows.
1: Well, I'm actually not as well-versed as the different, you know, what type of scar does this circumcision device leave? But I can explain the differences. So the Gomco clamp, which is probably one of the most popular, Um, uh, you know, I don't have one with me, but it's like this little bell. And so what you do is an infant's penis is very small and you take a probe, a blunt probe, and you jam it between the foreskin and the head of the penis because you have to tear that structure apart because you're going to remove it and it's fused. And then you put the little bell over the infant's penis and then you put the foreskin over it. And then there's like this little contraption that you twist and it crushes the infant 's foreskin, the most erogenous part of his body, with thousands and thousands of pounds of force and so what that does is it not only removes the lips of the genitalia but it it's supposed to promote uh, blood coagulation, so the infant doesn 't bleed to death it's extremely traumatic babies have have burst their lungs just screaming so hard as their genitals are being torn apart. And this is what happens to, to most American men, right? So talk about trauma. So that's probably the most popular is the Gomco clamp. There's also something called the Mogan clamp, which is kind of like scissors like this. And you just pull, you, you also do the blunt force, you know, you tear the structures apart and then you pull the foreskin over and you cut it off. Now the problem with that is again an infant's penis is exceptionally small so a lot of people lose part of the head of their penis when you do this as well. And then the the last well actually there are more versions as I talk there's the plaster belt which is you know if you when you're a kid and you uh, tie a string around your finger and you can see it turn purple or whatever what they do is they tie a string around the foreskin essentially for a week and then No blood gets to it, 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 all the tissue dies and it falls off. Apparently that leaves like a really big scar. And then there's the um, electro, uh, it's like the electrocautery gun or whatever. It's a high voltage gun and you literally go around the penis with this extremely hot high voltage gun and to remove the foreskin. And that has the Uh, the highest rate of complications. And these are high rates of complications. There's no law that you have to report them, but there's like good evidence that suggests about 10% have terrible complications, including loss of entire penis and death. But there was a very high profile little boy who lost his entire penis, David Reamer, with the electrocautery gun. And so the doctor was like, oh, I guess we're going to raise him as a girl. Well, obviously you have hormones that tell your body you're a man with the y hormone and all that. So he is getting conflicting uh, inputs, right, from his body and society, telling him he's a girl. Oh, well, he's it's actually and His penis was was removed from a botched circumcision. And uh, it was a very high-profile event because he eventually committed suicide because, you know, very traumatic what went on with him. So I think, you know, those are the four different types I know off the top of my head. All of them are brutal. All of them leave a scar. All of them uh, result in lifelong uh, sexual loss and dysfunction to a certain degree. But, um, those are the ways. And I'm sure there are more because if you can make money off this, there are people who will make various devices to, uh, move this part of the body.
0: And during, uh, a, a traditional Western medical birth, this would be something that is just kind of automatically, on the schedule and a uh, build line item in the procedure unless a parent is knowledgeable and says, oh, hey, we don't want to do this other thing that you want to do. Is that, is that kind of how it goes? Or do you think that's even nowadays, is it in the conversation at all? With your your medical team at birth, like oh hey, do you guys even want to do this? Is it is it in the conversation, or is it just something they just automatically schedule and they're just going to do it if you don't say otherwise? It's a great question. It's not
1: not intentionally aging you, but when you were born, this was before informed consent. Like I think in the eighties or seventies, I was, was born a... in
0: seventy. Okay, so
1: right before, there was a series of cases where informed consent, we all know about that now, but it wasn't a thing. It was, oh, you're born, you're circumcised, your parents would probably have to go out of their way to make sure that you're not. And the the hospital can um, collect money for it, right? So it's a great practice if you're a doctor in your hospital, you're trying to make money. Um, But after the 70s and 80s, you would need to at least sign a consent form. And the consent form needs to disclose all the material risks and the benefits of the procedure. Now, these consent forms are woefully deficient, but usually parents will have to at least sign something to give the hospital consent to perform this. Now, there's a huge array of legal problems with consenting to a medically unnecessary surgery, right? Because um, as a parent, you have proxy consent for medically necessary surgeries. But but culturally and socially, it's it's something that a parent has to at least consent to, but often doctors and nurses will harangue new parents multiple times until they consent to this. Um, So nowadays, it's it's usually something that you're asked many, many times, uh, but there are also some hospitals and doctors who no longer circumcise, which is great. And if you were born in almost any other country, they don't mutilate their infants. So it's not something you have to worry about.
0: What countries are still presently in widespread practice? The U.S., anyone else? Well, the religious ones.
1: Um, so a lot of the Middle East with Islam, Judaism, those are circumcising countries. Sometimes they're ritual, or sometimes they're medical. Uh, the Philippines do it, uh, sometimes around 12 or 14 years old. I have a Filipino friend who very clearly remembers being circumcised at 14. But because you're 14, you know, you're given anesthesia. And he says was very traumatic for him to see this huge part of his penis cut off. But he didn't have the agency necessary to hold that back, that cultural force. Know what I mean? You kind of still do what you're more or less told when you're 14. Um, so there's the religious in the Middle East. There's some tribal in Africa, which is often same tribes that circumcise females as well. And America is a leader in culture. But we're not so much a leader that we can convince the other, you know, uh, first world countries to mutilate their infants. They're like, <laughs> They're like, <laughs> like, okay, dude, we're not right. following you down that path. Um But you know, uh Canada does it to a lesser extent than America, but it America is the leader in non-religious genital mutilation.
0: Okay. And is there any decline in the prevalence of this practice over the past few decades? Or is it has has it maintained uh, its status quo? Oh, absolutely. So it probably we had a circumcision rate about 90%
1: in the 60s, I believe. And it's probably come down to about 55-ish percent. You know, it's, it's hard to get reliable data, but that's approximate that I've seen across various sources. So we're about half. And in California, it's much less than half. In the Midwest, it's much higher, right? So it's kind of an aggregate. In America, as many different cultures. So, we still mutilate just barely the majority of boys, but it depends where you are. Got it. Okay. All
0: right, the standard American diet is a disaster. Let me share some quick stats with you. 88% of Americans are considered metabolically unhealthy. 75% are overweight or obese. 34% are pre-diabetic, and 94 are diabetic. No bueno, my friends. Now, a ketogenic diet can be great for weight loss, but it's not for everybody. Uh, I've tried it many times and failed miserably. So if you're like me and you're not ready to ditch the carbs, I'm going to tell you how you can get your ketones on the sly. Ketone IQ is a drinkable source of exogenous ketones. It's actually been around since uh, 2017, but it was super expensive and largely used by elite athletes who could afford it. But the crew over at HVMN reformulated it last year, and it's now 66% more price efficient than the Ketone 1.0. Plus, I'll tell you what, it tastes a whole lot better. The first version was rough, I ain't gonna lie. I drink this stuff on the daily for multiple reasons, but one of them is that I can take it and be energized and not feel hungry for about five hours. To get started on your ketone journey or to up your current keto game, head over to HVMN.com slash Luke and subscribe at checkout to get 30% off your first subscription. Ketone IQ is made with BDO, which is found in foods like avocado, coconut, and honey. It's a really healthy energy source that the brain loves. Not only does Ketone IQ help me stay trim, but it also helps me drop into a flow state before every single podcast. No joke, uh, I love chugging one of these right before I record. Super sharp for the brain. Again, get yours today at hvmn.com slash Luke and subscribe upon checkout to get 30%. Now, many people listening to this conversation or watching this conversation will, up until this point, probably be thinking, wow, this sounds really bad. But I heard that Mm. there are medical reasons that are valid as to why we've been doing this. Um, UTIs, resistance to HIV, it's more sanitary, and so on. I'm sure you're very familiar with the defenses. I've noticed when this topic is brought up publicly on social media and so on, as I described earlier, it's usually men that have been mutilated that are defending it, and their defense usually has something to do with, yeah, but what about, yeah, but what about, and mm-hmm. I'll cite what I think you're about to tell us are erroneous uh, statistics and and, um, and and validating reasons why this is necessary or beneficial. So let's go ahead and move into debunking the necessity of this hmm. practice.
1: Sure, I, I'd love to. So, I always like to start kind of with a historical lens, just very briefly. So s- circumcision or genital mutilation has always been the cure for whatever the great fear was of the day, right? So it used to be circumcision cures masturbation. And there's some logic to that because you're removing the mobile skin, it makes it harder to masturbate, and masturbation used to be the big evil, uh, you know, in the Victorian era turn of the 18th or 19th century, 20th century, um, and the justification for circumcision has changed throughout the decades. It used to be epilepsy, wet dreams, curved spine, you name it. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Dude, yeah, so it's it's really, if you look at all of the things circumcision cured, it's obvious that they just kind of continue to grasp at straws. But if we look at the contemporary justifications and it's important also to note that the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I devoted 40 minutes to in my performance. You annihilated that. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 Do you know well, what they said in response? Well what? Nothing. They've just been totally silent for 10 years because they are the primary medical organization who used to promote circumcision, probably for financial reimbursement, but... Their policy expired five years after it was issued in 2012. So it's been expired in 2017. And they have in no way, shape, or form have been saying circumcision is beneficial because they had many opportunities to uh, double down on their previous justification. And they haven't, and wisely so, because there are legal liability issues to promoting medically unnecessary surgeries that result in men losing their penises and dead babies, right? So anyway... Uh, if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics, who is probably was on the vanguard of promoting this and no longer is, so we've come a long way, they'll say, okay, well, circumcision may prevent UTIs, urinary tract infections. And if you look at kind of what they say is anywhere from like three hundred like to 300,000 circumcisions prevents one UTI. But when someone gives you a range like that, you know, hundreds of thousands, it means they really have no idea what exactly is going on. And when you look at any particular study, you can see that you can find a study that proves both, both sides. And that's because people want to isolate genital cutting, genital mutilation, but it usually correlates with a whole host of other uh, cultural behaviors, right? So the reason that circumcision first was thought that it prevents venereal disease is when they did population studies at the turn of the 20th century, they saw, oh, wow, look, Circumcised men have lower rates of syphilis and gonorrhea and the venereal diseases of the time. But when you look at actually what those studies show, it was actually the Jewish population versus the Gentile population. And because Judaism, especially back then, was more um, conservative, it it did not promote philandering and and premarital sex, it was those practices that resulted in a lower um, venereal disease rate, not. Uh, not the presence or absence uh, of what foreskin. a sleight
0: of hand. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think it was
1: intentional. It was just like, look at this. It just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it validates your belief. Oh, wow, you know, this really is he- healthy and, and good then if, you know, you're raised in that religion. Um, now, it, it used to be HIV. Uh, circumcision prevents HIV. But if you look at the per capita rate of HIV, you know, HIV per person in America versus Europe, European men, somewhat similar cultures, European men have much lower rates of HIV than American men, and American men are circumcised or generally, generally mutilated far more than European men. They don't do that in Europe. So, if you were to look at a pure, a pure just comparison, population-wise, circumcision probably promotes the incidence of HIV. And that makes sense if you were to analyze the mechanics of intercourse, because when you remove the mobile skin, there's a lot more friction, there's a lot less lubrication, and that creates bleeding and places for pathogens to infect both partners. But the reason that HIV has become a mean, that circumcision prevents HIV, is because there were a series of studies that all found curiously, the exact same percentage, which is mathematically practically impossible, uh, that circumcision reduces your rate of contracting HIV by like 1.6% or something. And the media across American media, they said, oh, look, circumcision reduces your chance of contracting HIV by 60%, six zero. So what's the difference? Well, what these media companies were doing is they were taking a relative risk reduction saying, oh, instead of 2.6% of, of, intact men getting HIV and 1% of mutilated men, you compare those two numbers and 1% is 60% less than 2.6%. Does that make sense? So when you compare two very small numbers, the percentages of those could be big. And when you look at actually the methodology of those studies, what you find is if you were circumcised, if you were mutilated, well, you have two full months where you cannot have sex. So that reduces your time frame of contracting HIV, which could account for the difference. Also, if you were circumcised, you were part of the the control group who was taught how to use condoms. And that alone could account for the difference. But that didn't matter because the narrative that was desired to be pushed was that circumcision or genital mutilation was healthy. And we need to push that because there were probably people who were selling uh, devices to circumcise uh, boys and men, and they wanted to sell those devices, right? Or whatever it may be, or they wanted to feel good about uh, what their culture did. And if it's healthy, then how could it be harmful? But when you take a critical look at all of these justifications, they don't withstand scrutiny. And if you look at the academic literature, both uh, the contemporary ethical analysis and a lot of the medical literature, it says the exact opposite. Look, we need to respect people's rights to make important decisions about their own bodies. This causes immediate pain and trauma. And if you look at the just a population analysis between American and European men, European men have much lower rates of STDs, which doesn't necessarily mean that genital mutilation lowers your chance of contracting an STD. Or rate. that doesn't necessarily mean that circumcision lowers your chance of contracting an STD. But the very fact that European men have lower rates of STDs suggests that circumcision increases your rate of contracting an STD. And that makes sense, you know, hearkening back to kind of the mechanics discussion we're talking about. Um, but people are very susceptible to promoting ideas and views that that confirm their previous beliefs, you know, confirmation bias. And so in America, I'm sure a huge percentage of the, the publications who are pushing this narrative were circumcised themselves and said, oh, well, this is good. This justifies my body. It justifies what I did to my kids or my beliefs from my culture, whether it be religious or secular or, or you name it. But um, I'm happy to dive more into that if you want. But if you were to look at this issue from a kind of uh, a, a wider landscape. Let's say that circumcision, removing the labia of female infants, reduced their chance of contracting HPV by 50%. Wouldn't even be a conversation. It would say, no, we're going to respect these, uh, these women's rights to decide what happens to their body. They're fully competent to decide how much of their body they want to keep, and it's irrelevant. And so to here, it's morally irrelevant uh, whether or not circumcision had some prophylactic effect. And even if it did, infants aren't sexually active and men can make those decisions when they get older. And when we look at intact men in Europe and across the world, they don't cut off their foreskin. This is incredibly erogenous. They get can they get orgasms from this tissue. It makes them better lovers. It, it promotes comfort and um, and that's what we have evolved to be, right? These are important structures. So I think it just... One of the most persuasive things to humans, though, is if you continue to repeat something over and over and over and over again, it just kind of becomes part of your being, right? That's how we're, we're trained. So we're kind of overcoming this inertial ignorance. But we live in the age of information today, which is why I'm so uh, well, grateful to be here, one. So thank you. But And two, uh, optimistic that the younger generation is going to see through this BS because there is no uh, medical organization who's promoting it anymore. It's just this inertial ignorance, I would
0: say. It's like a, it's a habit. Yeah. It's like a cultural habit, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, because I I don't see any, there's so much medical propaganda, right? Because there's so much profit to be made around things like vaccines and so much of the uh, nonsense we've seen in the past three years. When there's uh, a profit to be made, the medical establishment goes on a full propaganda, assault, mm-hmm. brainwash the populace to take their medications and have their procedures, right? I've Now that you mention that, it's funny. I've never seen any medical establishment promotion of circumcision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like they don't need to because there's this generational cascade. Well, my grandfather had it done, so they did it to my dad, and then my dad authorized having it done to me, or I guess in my case, before informed consent, it just was automated (laughs) part of the process, unfortunately. But it it seems that that's the way it carries on. And then if someone intuits that, well, let's question this, maybe it's not right, Mm -hmm. then there's outdated, insignificant, and fictitious medical data, like you just described with UTIs and HIV and uh, hygiene and so on, that people will just hang on to that, even though that hasn't been substantiated or proven. In fact, by people like you and many others, it's been vehemently disproven. So it's like we're, we're hanging on to this artifact of culture that's so harmful, and there's really no medical basis for it. No one's really promoting it. It's just stuck in the system. It's like a bug in the system yeah. that just needs to be eradicated by hopefully people like us doing our small part to build awareness. I like that phrase, bug in the system. It really is. And and that's what my law firm's looking
1: to do, is strategic litigation, is we're just going to hit the nail on the head and say, look, it's admirable and absolutely correct and righteous that you protect baby girls. But if you're going to continue to do this, you need to protect all children. We're going to fix the floor. And so um, I'm hoping that a lot of people support us in doing that. But that's that's the plan because it is... It blows my mind that we need to be having this conversation in 2023. It's like, no, you shouldn't mutilate your infant. I'm telling you, yeah. don't cut off his genitals when he's born. Right. It's, like, it's,
0: it's insane. I mean, that's the thing. It's This is such a massive red pill because once you, I don't know, once you hear a conversation like this or, or just do any bit of research, it's so obvious that it's not only egregious and harmful, but also totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You know, Cookie likes you yeah, really. Cookie. <laughs> oh, good girl, Cookie. I love when uh, she comes and says, says uh, hi to her guests. Uh, At least the ones yeah. that like dogs. Exactly.
1: She, Cookie is opposed to genital mutilation. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. happened to her.
0: She was neutered oh. <laughs> right, right before I got her. Hi. Yeah. Poor, poor thing. Um, so yes, uh, where do I want to go with this next? Oh, there was something in your film that was a quote from uh, a rabbi in 1350. If there's no legitimate medical reason to mm-hmm. do this, and we're just doing it because it's this cultural artifact, this bug in the system, how how did it start? And like, what was the motivation to get this thing going originally? And, and I ask that because it seems like it was unequivocally nefarious. There's no way that, when humans started to do this to baby boys that they had any positive intentions and it's it's something having to do with like diminishing your sexual expression um, you know stopping masturbating it's it's like to turn young boys into abused slaves or something of that nature it is it is to me the origins of it are just demonic. There's no other way I can say it. And there was a quote that I screenshotted and (laughs) sent to Jared from my notes here from this rabbi. It says, she too will, speaking of, and maybe you can unpack it, but it's speaking about women. She too will court the man who is uncircumcised in the flesh and lie against his breast with great passion for he thrust inside her a long time because of his foreskin, which is a barrier against ejaculation in intercourse thus she feels pleasure and reaches an orgasm first. But when a circumcised man desires the beauty of a woman, he will find himself performing his task quickly, emitting his seed as soon as he inserts his crown. As soon as he begins intercourse, he immediately comes to a climax. She has no pleasure from him when she lies down. So to the nefarious origins of this, it seems like part of this is also to rob females of their sexual pleasure too because it makes the circumcised man finish quickly and be uh, you know a premature ejaculator and just <clears throat> makes the whole experience for both parties much less enthralling and ecstatic and I don't know why that one just jumped out at me because I always think of it as like oh men are really getting screwed on this one but also the female partners of circumcised men are as well and it seems to be that Uh, at least in some part, uh, this was intentional Mm -hmm. to diminish both of our sexual pleasure and experience. Well, there's no
1: culture that I'm aware of that circumcises females that also doesn't circumcise males, right? They're typically um, together. Uh, Judaism only in America only uh, circumcises men, right? But in terms of the quote you believe, it also jumped out at me. That's why I included it in the play. I believe Isaac. It's It's insane. (laughs) It's like, what? this is so evil. Well, Judaism speaks in many voices, right? And some rabbis are sex positive and some are not like him. And so at the time, and this is totally believable because around 1900, America was all, you know, Victorian anti-masturbation, anti-sexual pleasure. Um, But at the time, at least among you know, some Jewish sex is, is, is seen as an either or. You can either be sexually attuned as, as a human or you can be spiritually attuned, but you can't be both. And sexual, sexual pleasure and pursuit detracts from your relationship with God, right? And so it's seen as a good thing to damage men's sexuality. And if that damages female sexuality as well, well, that's great because we want our woman to be uh, more connected with the creator as well. So that was really kind of the rationale of, of some voices in Judaism in promoting this.
0: Do you think we should cover the five censored facts or do you think we've already essentially uh, wrapped them up throughout this conversation? I think we've more or less
1: covered them and we can okay. get
0: uh, you
1: know, people who want to watch the play and see kind of the
0: step-by-step
1: process. I mean, we could do it very quickly like go to, through each one?
0: Let's do it. Let's okay. do it real fast. Okay. And I you know, and I highly encourage people that have the stomach for it and want to face reality, that they do watch your film. And again, we'll put that at lukestory.com slash clapper C L O P P E R. And I'll put that link in the show description as well with the link to your talk. But this was really the the underpinning and the crux of that presentation. Mm. And I know it's many years ago and you're moving on to, you know, other levels of understanding and litigation and all this stuff, but that was a really good bedrock yeah. to follow. So maybe we could just quickly yeah. number one, rabbis designed circumcision deliberately to damage Jewish children's sexuality. Which kind of goes to our last bit of this conversation. Well, the last quote I
1: shared, certainly. Yeah. And, kind of like I mentioned before, Judaism has many different voices, but there was definitely a contingent, no doubt, where it's like, we're going to circumcise our kids to ensure that they feel less sexual pleasure, right? That is the purpose, um, so that they're more committed to their biblical studies, right? And so for people to understand that is, is unsettling, right? Because we're always taught, you know, don't Don't rock the boat. You don't want to say anything insensitive about anybody's religion or whatnot. And that's not my objective by any means. At the same time, the reality is there was definitely a strong uh, contingent of religious voices. It could be Judaism and Islam as well who wanted to um, sexually damage their boys, right? And there's a whole host of quotes. I think I include Moses Mamona days, Mamona days, uh, uh, approximately, (laughs) who said... There is no question about it. This weakens the male sexual organ, and that is the purpose of doing so, right? And so uh, that's not something as a Jewish man I wanted to hear. But when there's a consistent narrative over thousands of years of what the purpose of this practice was, it's hard to ignore and throw out entirely, right? Because it's the same practice. So, so yeah, um, maybe unsurprisingly, the Judeo-Christian religions were not very sex-positive,
0: uh, number two is American doctors adopted the practice to stop people from masturbating. Yes, and, and so they they probably read some of the rabbinic justifications,
1: and in the turn of the 20th century, they understood, oh, wow, Jewish doctors are advocating for this because it, or at least some, because it makes it more difficult to masturbate. And in the Victorian era, Christian doctors also wanted to ensure that uh, little boys and um, adolescent boys weren't masturbating. And if you remove that tissue, the mobile tissue, it makes it harder to masturbate. That's why American men need lotion and European men just masturbate normally
0: with the penis <laughs> that they were given. <laughs> right. Right? right. So totally. Yeah. And, I remember that that part of your presentation. There's like screenshots from all these different films where there's jokes about a guy having the lotion next yeah, to yeah. the bed and things like that. Yeah.
1: It's like all this adolescent humor, like Family Guy and South Park and, um, probably Rick and Morty or Brickleberry or things like that. And it's like, yo, you guys don't see this? This is a total sexual disability that we're imposing because you're not supposed to need to go to CVS to buy lubricant to masturbate, right? We evolved in the wild and we're primates. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, obviously we have culture and all of that great stuff, but we shouldn't need to have these these external additives to have sex and to masturbate and that is what removing this sexual tissue does and to understand that medical doctors were motivated to prevent kids from masturbating all the way through the 70s is really hard to stomach but it's true and if you were circumcised even in the 90s or 2000s your doctor's probably you know 40 to 60 years old and he learned at medical school look we need to circumcise kids to make sure that they aren't masturbating. It's come a very long way, but uh, that's um, that's the nature of, the, of
0: how it started. And-, and 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 what about the scarring of the skin, right? Because you you show photos of uh, a natural penis and a circumcised one, and I like that you you nullify the differential of being uncircumcised. It's mm-hmm. actually a non-reality. Right? Are. You're just you're just normal. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the circumcised one is the one that's been altered and requires its own uh, its own specific name, mm-hmm. right? This is just called a penis yeah. or a circumcised penis. But there were photos of the two of them and I don't think I've ever seen an uncircumcised one in action. Mm. And so the foreskin had been pulled back and it was like, I looked at it and it was all sort of um, very smooth looking, like mm. much like the like vaginal tissue, just mucous membrane, smooth, shiny, yeah. much more red. And I was like, well, mine definitely doesn't look like that. And then the picture of the one that had been mutilated is all sort of like calloused, really, comparatively. Yeah. And I was like, mine looks like that one. And yeah, then you yeah. explained there's a cartenoid or what was the, the uh, type of scar? I don't know if you remember. No, I do remember keratin. Keratin.
1: Yeah, it's a type of protein. It's what your nails are made of in um, rhinoceros horns. And what happens is You know, these are mucous membranes. Like the inside of your lip is like the easiest thing to grasp. And the head of the penis is supposed to be kept warm and moist by the uh, mucous membrane of the foreskin, the inner part, which is like the inside of your your lip. Um, And when you remove that over the decades your body reacts to this, this external irritation by putting a layer of protein, that keratin, over it. So not only are you missing most of the sensory tissue, but the remaining sensory tissue is actually buried under a layer of callous protein, right? And um, so it's a really extreme diminishment of the sexual organ.
0: So you not only have the ring scar around the shaft from where the foreskin was attached, but the whole thing is essentially calloused. It's an extreme act of violence. Oh my God, dude. All right. Number three, uh, circumcision significantly damages you for life. Um, I (laughs) mean, I think we've spoken to this, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we've covered that. Um, Number four, the U.S. media continues to push the American Academy of Physicians propaganda recommending circumcision. Mm. So this probably speaks to some of the pushback and criticism you and and outspoken um, intactivists have had, right? Where the media labels you as some sort of crazy conspiracy theory mm. because you just want babies to be the way they were born. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, you know, and fair enough, maybe
1: I was, uh, I was a little caustic, but, you know, I, I was 25 I, and I wanted to make a point and the American Academy of Pediatrics has no longer advocates for genital mutilation. So it was kind of effective in a way, right? Um, but if you look at kind of the slide, and it has all of these major media institutions. I'm hoping that they've changed with time, uh, but you know I don't want to misname them. But I looked up each one to make sure that they were advocating this old narrative that is beginning to phase out. It's like Boston Globe, um, ABC, Fox, things like that. I'm not 100% sure those were it at the time. They were all quoting the American Academy of Pediatrics, yet Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics decision is demonstrably false if you were to peel it back layer by layer uh, in terms of saying uh, the benefits of the procedure outweigh the risks. But if you look at what the risks are, they admit multiple times they have no idea what the risks are. And if you look at the benefits, you see, oh, wow, they actually don't know how this benefits you in terms of reducing STDs or STIs because when you look at the studies, it's very unclear... uh, that they actually promote what the AAP says it promotes and they don't include any contrary literature because they just say, oh, well, those were poor study design, right? <laughs> so, but, and then they don't even mention how important the foreskin is. So th- there's this totally fallacious recommendation that is parroted by all of these major mainstream um, news organizations. And when you look at that, you're like, oh, wow, that's, he just showed me the whole thing and how it works. It takes 40 minutes, but it's, it's correct. And I, I'm I'm optimistic that I'm pretty sure the narrative is changing, but it needs to change quicker. Awesome.
0: And then number five, male and female circumcision are not similar. They are identical.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you're cutting off homologous structures of infants, right? Uh, the genitals come from the same structures uh, in utero. So during gestation, it's either a vulva or a penis, and you can mount the different parts of the genitals, the male and female, like the clitoris is homologous to the glands, the head of the penis, the foreskin is homologous to the clitoral hood, testes homologous to, um, uh, I believe, the ovaries. But the point is, we would never permit a physician or religious practitioner to remove the clitoral hood or the labia or the clitoris. Yet with baby boys, we allow them to remove Identically innervated or homologous structures, but if that child were born the other gender because of the double X chromosome, then it would be unlawful. But in terms of like actual these psychological mechanisms that perpetuate genital mutilation, uh, removing the structures, adopting language that makes intact men feel lesser, uncircumcised. There's no unmastectomized woman, right? Right. (laughs) Like, uh, like, all of it requires this huge cultural and societal apparatus to continue genital mutilation. And all those things we readily recognize in, like, African tribes that mutilate girls, uh, those are present in our culture as well.
0: Let's take a minute here as I would love to share my latest discovery with you, lifestylist listeners. As soon as I tried this product, I became instantly obsessed, and it's now officially a non-negotiable ingredient in my morning smoothie and sometimes even coffee. First time I tried it, I felt focused, uh, my mind was clear, and it continues to improve my mental performance on the daily. I actually had some in my smoothie this morning and will likely do another scoop in some water for my afternoon work block to keep this brain pumping. You're probably hip to the superpowers of mushroom extracts and collagen protein. Well, the product I'm talking about here contains the most hyper-concentrated forms of four of the best brain-boosting mushrooms. So that's lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and reishi, plus collagen protein and Peruvian cacao. This magic in a jar, my friends, is called Collagenius, And I love that it turns your brain on without any jitters or crash whatsoever. It's super clean brain energy. So if you're getting beat down with the old brain fog, have difficulty focusing, and want to repair your brain in the most natural way, you definitely want to check this stuff out. Here's what you do. Go to newtopia.com slash LukeGenius and use the code Luke10 at checkout and save 10%. That's N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A, newtopia.com slash Genius and check this out Newtopia the company that makes College Genius is so confident that you'll love this product that they offer a 365 day money back guarantee so uh, there's no risk for you here to check this out again your link is Newtopia.com slash Luke Genius and the code is Luke10 do it now you guys your brain will thank you What about overcoming the emotional trauma as a man uh, yourself, or or people that you've interacted with when you are red pilled and have the realization that you were abused and assaulted in this way? Like, what what's been helpful to you in your own journey being an advocate?
1: Honestly, it was very traumatic for me to understand that such a a violent act occurred to me that not only just immediately but throughout time, but. I think um, the passage of time really heals a lot of wounds and it's easier not to confront this, which is a large reason why it continues. But once you realize, oh, wow, this occurred to me, this happened to me, it was it was a violence. Um, you know, I think there's a whole range of emotions that to be expected. It could be rage. It could be, uh, it could be, The grief, you know, the whole spectrum was kind of put on my play, which was very real and made people react viscerally, which was kind of the point. I think talking with other people who understand what your feelings so you don't feel like, oh, I'm alone. I'm the only person who feels like I was robbed of something uh, and everyone else is is uh, disqualifying me in my opinion right? Uh, that can be very difficult. But when you talk with people who understand and relate and say, you know what, I actually agree with you that we should not be treating our children this way. That You shouldn't have been treated that way. And we need to protect other kids doing so. I think that can be very cathartic. I think finding both intimate and, and non-intimate relationships to discuss this with and see how how uh, it affects you and understanding from friends and family can really make uh, help you cope with that trauma. I would say, um,
0: it's, yeah, and I think I'll probably stop there for that one. <laughs> okay, that that that's good. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, a lot to be said for just open dialogue and sharing your inner experience with trusted people. You know, oftentimes there's there's just a lot of healing in that that can take place, and I, I guess that's been my path is just acknowledging that the thing happened, mm-hmm. there's nothing, well, we are going to talk about something you can do to kind of change it because that's kind of the yeah. last, <laughs> my last third of okay. questions, but it is what it is, right? Yeah. Like, I don't blame my parents. I never blame my parents. They were just doing what was standardized and apropos for the time. Um, when I've asked them about it, that's like a non-issue for them. They don't even remember it being discussed. It was, it was not a thing. So, yeah. um, and I also just want to say for parents out there that have elected um, to have their boys circumcised. this conversation is not meant to shame them or mm-hmm. you know um, discount them in any way. I think most of this is happening because of a lack of awareness. people just don 't know yeah it 's just like the bug in the machine man it 's just what you do, or the thing that you you talked about I think also in your um, in your presentation was you know dads want their boy to look like them they don't want the boy to look weird right yeah. and look different in the locker room and all that kind of stuff so i think parents have the best intentions but hopefully some parents to be that already have kids and are going to have more or people that haven't had kids yet will hear this conversation and and be um more thoughtful and yeah. <laughs> in consideration of this practice but uh what i wanted to get to uh, before we wrap up is this, um, you know, the subculture of intactivists, right? There's mm. people in this movement, there are some uh, protests and websites and people out there doing this kind of work. And there's a a, a certain segment of the, the uh, mutilated male population that are doing something called foreskin restoration. And I understand there's a number of techniques that people mm. are using where you're stretching the skin out over time i know i have one friend that tried it <laughs> for a few months and he's just like it's too much work i just mm. gave up it's just like i don't have that many hours a day to <laughs> sit there and tug on my member um, what's you know what's the not an what, but what's the uh, success rate of people that are you know because obviously skin can regrow and it's mm. malleable yeah, and yeah. when you cut your arm you know skin appears out of thin air and all yeah, of a sudden the cuts closed so Make sense that you could stretch skin, uh, just mm-hmm. like when people get their ears pierced and put those big plugs in. Mm-hmm. Makes a big hole, you know? Um what what's the uh what are the various methods by which people can um regrow their foreskin and restore it? Does it work? How how to how are people doing it? Give me the whole lowdown on that. Okay. Well, I'm not totally sure on the success
1: rate and kind of like with you know, mutilating infants, there's not like great data. You know, sure. there's, there's no like, you know, database of men who've done foreskin restoration or whatnot. But kind of like with any part of your body, like you can st- stretch the neck to be longer by putting in those rings. You can stretch the earlobes. You can stretch the remnant foreskin over the head of the penis. And I mean, it takes, I would say, probably years to do so because when you circumcise or mutilate an infant, there's an extreme reaction where there's an incredible amount of scar tissue in the penis after that that needs to be worked through. But, um, you know, I, I've heard it takes years to do this, but if you're committed to kind of restoring the foreskin, whether, you know, through hands or devices or whatever, and there are whole, I'm sure, subreddits and like websites devoted to this and you can go down that whole rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, is if a man restores his foreskin, you don't have the same specialized structures that you were born at birth, but kind of like we discussed in depth, the head of the penis is an internal structure, right? And so if the restored foreskin, which is stretched skin, covers the head of the penis, that head of the penis will actually uh, be restored to its, more or less to its original sensitivity after weeks, that keratin that we discussed that covers the head of the penis will kind of fall off. And men and you know i probably won't talk about my my personal sex life maybe in a future mm-hmm. episode of this Fair enough. but uh but uh i've heard that orgasms become far more intense when the head of the penis is more when it is uh sensitive because it's it's covered in internal structure you recover a lot of the mechanics because the The penile skin is supposed to fold in and out of itself during intercourse. And so, if you restore, you become closer to what a biological male um, is supposed to look like and function. So, uh, men who are committed to this are able to, um, let's say, recover some of the functions of the foreskin, which can increase sexual pleasure, sexual function, psychological state in terms of, hey, you know, this happened to me when I was an infant or a kid. I didn't consent to it, but now. I appear to be an intact male as opposed to a circumcised or mutilated male, right? So the, those foreskin restoration is like, is something that you can do that may mitigate the damage. And um, there's a company out there who's trying to use stem cells to regrow the foreskin, for Gen, And, you know, they've been kind of slowly making progress over 15 years or so. Um, and I used to try to help them move along And, you know, I helped them raise a few hundred thousand dollars and publish some research and and whatnot. But eventually I was like, you know, I'm more passionate about stopping this. I think we need to stop the bleeding before we address, you know, how can we help men regain a lot of the functions that they lost? Because that trauma will always be psychologically imprinted on mutilated men, but we can still help them regain a lot of the sexual function that was taken from them.
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right. In closing, tell us, uh, give us the update on your legal proceedings, your litigation. Where where does this stand with your Harvard case and and all that now that now that you've become an attorney. Yes,
1: attorney law. Which I, yeah. I, lo- which I love that. Uh, I love that.
0: You're like, cool, I'm in a legal situation. I'm just going to go to law school, pass the bar, and go after this thing myself. Uh, hey, man, the, cool. the obstacle is the way. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. When I was
1: terminated, I was like, okay, well, this is, you know, new career path. We have to make it work. I mean, that's what you do, right? And so when I filed my lawsuit against Harvard in federal court in July 2020, the federal judge overseeing the case, he he received what's called my complaint, which started the lawsuit. Then he received Harvard's motion to dismiss, which argues why he should end the lawsuit and kick me out the courthouse doors. And in a very surprising move, the first judge called the district court, he granted Harvard's motion to dismiss before I was even able to file a response, before I was even able to argue why Harvard's Gross mischaracterization of me was a cartoon caricature, which totally dismisses all of the valid points as to why we should protect children from genital mutilation. Um, And it was so quick, so draconian that although every single plaintiff in federal court gets 21 days to what's called amend your complaint, fix or correct your complaint where it's gone awry. I was given 15 days, not 21. And this was during COVID. So people routinely got multi-month extensions. I didn't even get the minimum amount of time, which is extremely draconian, clear violation of, you know, my due process right to litigate my claims, according to the Supreme Court. When I brought this on appeal, The appellate court has a normal briefing process and a frivolous briefing process. The normal briefing process, both sides submit a brief, takes about 19 months in the First Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appellate court in Massachusetts, Northeast. And then the frivolous is they just take these ridiculous appeals and throw them in the trash because it's just wasting everyone's time. Well, when I appealed to the appellate court from 2020 to 2023, March, I had asked the federal appellate panel, like independent of the merits of my lawsuit, which it is meritorious. At the end of the day, it was a bright line violation of what's called Rule 15A, and everyone gets 21 days to amend their complaint. I got 15. You cannot say I got a fair hearing if the rules were not applied equally to me as they should be to everyone who comes before the courts. And so, what the appellate panel did is they danced around the issue on appeal for over two years and then dismissed it as frivolous without addressing the question of law I, I raised. Which was damn. Yeah, it was pretty like shady. Yeah. Um, it was pretty brazen, actually. And the only recourse you have if, if this occurs, which almost, I mean, I'm really surprised it did occur, but is that you file a petition to the Supreme Court. And so I laid everything out in my petition. It's like, look, these are the claims. Um, at the end of the day, independent of the claims, I, I, my lawsuit was prematurely terminated. Everyone gets 21 days at least. I got 15 days. Uh, it was extremely draconian. If you look at all of the steps, like the judge didn't even read the reasons why my um, counsel missed a one-day delay because he had COVID. Um, it, if you look at how the appellate panel and the en banc panel, the, all the First Circuit ruled, it was legally and factually inconsistent, saying, well, it was essentially a harmless error that we didn't give you your right to amend because you haven't shown how you could amend your complaint. But four federal judges had explained to me how I could amend my complaint. Uh, so it doesn't make sense on its face. So when I put all this together in my petition to the Supreme Court, the case analysts at the Supreme Court looked at it and said, look, this young man... Uh, probably has a a very good point. So we're going to assign him case number one for the new term. And so of the thousands of petitions the Supreme Court received this term, mine is sitting at the top. And all it asks, it doesn't ask to address genital mutilation or to address uh, whether or not universities have any obligation to honor their free expression policies, although that's an exceptionally important issue in our democracy. It just asks if the federal judiciary is committed to applying the same rules to everybody. Right. And in this decisive time for our democracy and our courts and the great back and forth of politics, we really rely on our judiciary to fairly implement the rules to all parties. And if you look at the proceedings in my case, it is evident on its face that I was not given the minimum amount of time to make my arguments against Harvard. And that's clear reversible error. It's probably one of the easiest petitions to the Supreme Court to rule on a a matter of law. And my counsel and I are really hoping that the Supreme Court looks at this and says, you know, this is our opportunity to really underscore the fact that we really are for due process for everybody and the rules apply equally to everybody, no matter if you're falsely accused of anti-Semitism or or accused of anything. I mean, this is America and we try to treat everybody equally. And that was clearly not the case here. And Just kind of building off on that a little is not only was my petition ranked number one, but three amicis, three, um, it's called an amicus curiae, friend of the court. Three organizations are actually supporting me now, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, Doctors opposing circumcision, which is hundreds of medical professionals, both Jewish and non-Jewish, who believe it's their ethical and medical duty to protect children from male genital mutilation. We have GALDEF, Genital Autonomy Legal Defense and Education Fund, who my law firm is working with to start launching these equal protection challenges and then we have Jews against circumcision which are my fellow um Jewish brothers and sisters who really believe look uh it's time that as a people we evolve and protect our children from genital mutilation and maybe we sacrifice a pomegranate instead of the flesh of an infant's genitalia right um so so yeah i mean
0: pila Banana. Whatever. (laughs) So, and and
1: this is, you know, an opportunity Uh, for the Supreme Court to opine on these important issues. Probably not general mutilation, but free expression in the academy, due process for all. So, I'm grateful that you're, um, had me on the show, kind of discuss these important issues. And hopefully, uh, this will dovetail into more important initiatives. Because I know your viewers really trust you and rely on you for important information. And this is, utmost if you're having a boy, right? You want to, what's best for your children and keeping him intact and protecting him
0: from this is of paramount importance. So thank you. Word, 100%. And the next phase of this, uh, Court proceeding is on September 27th, is that what you said? Well,
1: September 26th, the justices' 26. conference on... This is my first time in the Supreme Court. I, You know, I'm okay. not totally yeah, on yeah. how it works, but uh, I believe the justices will discuss, is this a petition that we want to hear? Because okay. it's a discretionary grant. Um, and they only hear 2% of cases, but if you were to look at case number ones throughout... It, uh, past terms. It's much higher. Um, and also I have an amicus brief, which also increases the chance. It's a timely issue uh, in terms of you know enforcing due process for everybody. So uh, we'll see if they hear it. But I think it would set a really strong precedent to equally apply the rules of civil procedure to everybody. And it would set a very sad precedent to ignore the case and deny the petition and allow different rules to be applied to Harvard as opposed to everybody
0: else or
1: whatever the case may be.
0: Word. Word. Okay, great. Well, this episode's going to come up before that, so hopefully we get a lot of ears and eyes on on your uh, your fight against the machine. What do you see for yourself in the future once you kind of you know, extricate yourself from the Harvard drama and all of that? Um, is this the kind of work you're going to be doing as an attorney? Or are you going to focus on advocacy for, for this issue or just you know, be a litigator in general cases of whatever ilk, like, do you see yourself yoked to this particular topic Mm. for the foreseeable future? Or do you want to diversify and do other things with your life? Like, is this coming to a close? Or is this like a mission that's going to go on for you? Well, it's a great question. And the Harvard
1: case is going to end no matter what. Um, The genital mutilation stuff, I would like it to end because we stopped doing it. But I will continue to litigate issues for children's rights well after the Harvard case ends, however that may be. Um, Will I be fighting genital mutilation forever? Well, I hope that we agree as a society in the not-too-distant future that, hey, this was something that we did, that we inherited culturally, socially, but we understand now that it is in the child's best interest to protect them and keep them intact, right? I'm hoping that we can come to that realization in, you know, five years, maybe, maybe more, maybe less. But there are some causes, like I mentioned before, gay marriage that flipped very quickly, legalization of marijuana. I think that this is an issue that's very timely, that can unite people on the left and the right and even apolitical because it is just a human thing to want to protect kids and protect the innocent. And this really is just just such a tragedy to perform on a person. So I'm hoping that we can resolve this in a matter of years. Uh, I'm a full-time litigator as well uh, right now. Like I've got a big trial coming up. i got a bunch of clients. I work probably more than I would like to. But we'll see where things play out, right? I didn't anticipate I'd end up here, right? Uh, Life is a journey. (laughs) So it's it's like, where do you anticipate you'll be in five years? Well, we're a little over the five-year mark with my play. And... I had no conception that I would go to law school, that the case might go to the Supreme Court, that I would find a law firm who is just as committed to protecting children as I am. So like, we will see. I I would like to continue to help people in whatever capacity that is as an advocate, as you know, maybe a politician, as an entrepreneur. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of opportunity out there and I think that we both can make a positive impact so we'll do what we can
0: awesome man well I'm so grateful that you flew out here to Austin Texas to have this conversation I love that I'm always very honored when someone deals with the uh, stress of travel just to come see me and the people that listen to this show so I appreciate it and um, appreciate your fire man and your courage and integrity and tenacity I mean the stuff that you've been up against is uh, no joke and I know it takes a certain fortitude of character to carry on like you have and also just to to maintain your spirits i mean you're still a happy go lucky guy you know know, you've been up against the beast system in a really major way kind of going at one of its core practices you know i mean i really think this is out of all that's wrong with society this is as i said earlier really um at the root of a lot of our problems so i appreciate your your work and that you're taking one for the team it's 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 probably not something i could handle trying to take on myself you know i'm I'm am i've got broad strokes in the way i yeah. approach different you know problems in our society and try to help people live their best life and this one is like man if you're if you're willing to take one for the team be known as the foreskin guy ostensibly yeah, <laughs> you know, right. it's like that's a that's a big sacrifice so we and uh, all of the future male babies um appreciate you and thank you for your work well, thank you, Luke. It's been an honor to be here. I really appreciate the
1: invitation. I'm hoping and I'm certain that this will protect many thousands of boys and hopefully dovetail into tens or hundreds or more of thousands of children because, you know, the time is coming where we're going to protect all our kids, and this is one step closer. So thank you, Luke.